Martha Van Houten, and each week I'm here with Brian Buck, lead pastor at Oaks Parish, to go a little deeper into Sunday sermon and to keep the conversation going throughout the week as we journey together in learning what it means to abide in Christ for the renewal of all things. So let's dive in. Here we are again for week two of the Oaks Parish podcast. We had a great conversation last week. I think we both agreed, though, looking back, that we could have a little more fun around here. So I'm going to start off with a question that at least I think is really fun. It's about my favorite pastime, which is reading. And this could be a really boring topic for some people, so we won't talk about it every week, I promise. But it's where we're going to start today. Last week, In your sermon, Brian, you talked about a book that had really impacted you called A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls, I believe, Yes, which I read sometime in the last year with my book club. And I love hearing about books from other people's perspectives because they can be so different. I remember just trudging through that book and thinking, like, is anything ever going to happen in this story yeah. this That's man funny. is just living in this hotel this is so tedious there were a couple <laughs> points a couple maybe this points. is saying something about my personality no 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 no. that no. i would like to live in a luxury hotel tediously over a period of 30 years it might be just what you need maybe that is at this point and stage of life this season of life maybe you need a break or a pause like that but it was like there are a couple points where an action something kind of exciting happened. And I thought, oh, it's going to get good now. It's going to pick up. This is like the crux of the story finally. And then it just went right back (laughs) to the mundane and the tedium. But I know so many people do love that book. Half my, the other women in my book club really enjoyed it, I think. So I'm glad that you're one of them. And I just had to say my piece about it in case (laughs) everyone ran to the library after the service and checked it out. And had similar thoughts or feelings to me. But what else, Brian? What what else has impacted you? Or what else are you reading this fall? Where's your bookmark at right now? Yeah, A Gentleman in Moscow was a long obedience in the same direction for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just couldn't show up without having finished. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I just had somebody a couple of months ago say to me, I bet you read a lot or read all the time. And, and maybe that's naturally assumed by pastors. But throughout the week, I spend a good uh, portion of my time doing quite a bit of technical reading in preparation for the sermon. So in this stage of my life, I oftentimes feel like I'm just completely brain dead by the time that I get home. And then I'm on Instagram or I'm watching YouTube or something, you know, yeah. comedians yeah. on YouTube or something. But um, Martha, you you really challenged me to uh, perhaps uh, just uh, take it in small bites and maintain (laughs) the practice of reading. So this fall, I'm I'm actually reading uh, three books personally, but also related to ministry here at Oaks Parish. I I always have multiple books going. Maybe that's true for a lot of people, but Mm. it seems like my books fall in, in three categories. Uh, God, culture, and self. Uh, I studied under a professor, a systematic theologian by the name of John Frame, and he 
has this philosophy of triperspectivalism that everything's kind of in the pattern of the Trinity. So maybe that's falling out in my reading pattern. But in terms of God, uh, our elder team this year is reading a book called Deeper by Dane Ortland. And it is a fantastic exploration of the gospel. And I just love Christian authors who are able to think and reflect more deeply on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And that book certainly accomplishes that task. So that's been a really life-giving read this fall. Um, I'm also reading, I'm actually rereading through Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Hmm. So I, I listened to that book on Audible about six months ago. And then I thought, you know, there was there was so much information in that book, so many thoughts to process. I should just make my way back through that. Uh, and it really kind of spells out Stoic philosophy, which I think casts a beautiful vision for how do we live life from a place of equanimity, a place of rootedness, which is obviously the core of our mission here at Oaks Parish. So I find the Stoic philosophers actually saying uh, quite a bit of correct things about behavior, but they don't really get to the why behind those behaviors. I think that's where the gospel, the glory of the gospel comes in, that Mm -hmm. who Jesus is for us, it enables us to live a life of equanimity. Finally, I'm reading the book Lethal Agent by Kyle Mills, which is book 18, I think, something like that, in the Mitch Rapp series. Oh, wow. So this is my my pleasure read. Uh, Mitch Rapp is like the ultimate uh, CIA agent, assassin, globally feared. So uh, I'm very deep in the Mitch Rapp series and often read that at night as I fall asleep. That's wonderful. Those are great recommendations. I'm glad to hear of that variety in there too. Yes. <laughs> it was pretty deep there for for a minute, which is wonderful. But yeah, a little Yeah, we, we we go from now. from deeper in meditations to lethal agents. So that yeah. was yeah. That's quite the progression there. <laughs> there you go. Well, a variety of tastes too. That's great. And before before we move on at newcomers, you said that part of why you love fall is it moves you into kind of this season of reading yeah and you like to kind of get cozy and grab a book what are you reading yeah I mean to be fair that's every season for me it's not just fall I could have given that answer in the spring or summer or winter or whatever but um I am I'm an avid reader mostly fiction and I am less than 10 books away from my goal of reading a hundred books this year. So I'm going <laughs> wow. to be honest. I don't even know how to answer this question. I've just been like pounding through finishing one and diving right into the next and not really reflecting much on what I've read. I just have the goal, the end is in sight. And it's been really fun. I've read a lot um, that I wouldn't normally pick up probably this year. Um, but I just finished like a really lightweight rom-com over the weekend. That's all I'll say about that one. Nothing, nothing to report awesome. there. Awesome. Uh, before that, I read a really gritty detective story by an Irish writer. It was called The Ruin. And then this week I'm working on the next book for my book club I'm in, which is kind of like a historic 
adventure story set in the Alaska wilderness, kind of like a Lewis and Clark expedition type. It's called To the Bright Edge of the World, I believe. It's very outside of my reading comfort zone, just that genre in general. But that's what book clubs are really good for, you know, to just branch out a bit. Totally. And that's a good thing. Good thing for me. So in the new year, I hope to slow down. <laughs> well, even you're, you've really inspired me to think more about fiction. I feel like there's like this whole world that I'm missing out on. I, I'm a, I don't know. Maybe I'm a too serious of a reader. Well, it's good to have some purpose probably, you know, in your reading, but. Just depends. Yes. Well, speaking of stories, yesterday we continued our sermon series into 1 Samuel 2. And this story has all sorts of things going on, starting with Hannah's song of praise. And then with the juxtaposition of the wickedness of Eli's sons and the blessing of Samuel. And though you started your sermon at the end of the chapter and worked your way backwards, I want to start at the beginning with Hannah's song today. It begins with so much energy and hope, this praise and exaltation for God, for his justice and his might and his righteousness feel, felt almost like a call to worship, like gather around everyone, listen to what God has done, what he's doing, what he'll continue to do. And you mentioned this, that Hannah's song parallels Mary's Magnificat in the gospel of Luke. There's a lot of similar language in them. Beginning with that exaltation, they both talk about God lifting up the lowly, bringing down the proud. And then they end with this like recitation of the promises of God. So is this just a coincidence or is there something significant, you know, in the whole of the biblical narrative or in the genre or anything else that we're seeing such similarities between Hannah's song and Mary's Magnificat? Yeah, it's a fascinating question and one that scholars note in commentaries it's interesting to note that in both cases, women are central to God's plan to renew Israel through royal figures. And in both the ancient Near East and in first century uh, Rome, kingship was typically spoken of in masculine terms. I mean, you can follow the story of kings in the Old Testament in first and second kings, first and second chronicles. And there you find this very masculine lineage uh, in Jesus's day uh, when Caesar was on the throne, the very origin of the word gospel that is good news. That was a term that was primarily used by Caesar in announcing the birth of a male heir, mm. that this royal figure would continue the, the work of the kingdom. And here in the Bible, in both cases, ancient Near East, first century Rome, uh, we find that uh, this renewal that was coming to Israel through royal figures was really announced through these women. And that resonates with 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. God chose the foolish things of the world. What, what perhaps is uncommon or radical or foolish in the world's eyes to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. In both of uh the words of these women, they celebrate a well-founded faith, both in, in both they recognize that their pregnancies are a reversal of fortune, both in their personal lives and the corporate life of Israel. So there's almost this expectation of kingship in both of them, but also this was important 
to, to both of the women personally. You know, Hannah certainly experienced derision and, and a sense of personal shame. Uh, Mary became pregnant unexpectedly, miraculously, um, before she was even married uh, to Joseph, pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, but she had to be the talk of the town. So th- both women are celebrating a reversal of fortune because of their pregnancy. Uh, both declare God is judge, the one who's moved against the proud and the boastful. Um, and certainly this was true for both women um, in the circumstances that they were facing personally. But this justice-oriented language in both Hannah's prayer and Mary's song, it also serves as a prophetic critique of Israel's priesthood, both in ancient Israel as well as the first century. Uh, both In both cases, the temple was corrupted and compromised in various ways, as we know. Yeah, one thing that does strike me about both their songs, which I, I think is what you're getting at here, that they're singing about God's justice and righteous and righteousness and faithfulness about the coming like of the one true king with this deep conviction even before he has come like of course they've heard the stories or experienced God's faithfulness in other ways but like you said there's like this prophetic voice about them that says this is who God is and what he's done, even before he's fully done it, even before the Messiah has arrived on the scene. And that conviction is just so striking, especially think in the midst of our own doubts or our own weak hopes, you know, about what God will do with all of the destruction and the desecration that we see. Yeah. It's an inspiration toward faith. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. So after Hannah's song, then we have these two sections that juxtapose the wickedness of Eli's son's and the ministry of Samuel in the tabernacle. And what we're looking at here is like the handling of priestly ministry. I think we all see the priestly ministry as a high and a holy calling, not something that you should enter into lightly by any means, both in the tradition of ancient Israel and in the present day. For Eli's sons, I guess it was sort of like a family business. (laughs) So I don't know how that alters things, but... Nonetheless, no doubt, Eli impressed upon his sons, right? And modeled for them the sacredness of this calling. But something went wrong because there's theft, there's desecration, there's abuse. And I think this is one of those situations where we read a story in an agent context and we think, we might think we'll have to work really hard to translate like any relevance into our own context. But here it's not hard at all, unfortunately, mm-hmm. because this abuse of power is very real in the church today. Unfortunately, it's so disillusioning, but you see theft, abuse and the like happening um, outside the church and it's upsetting and there's hopefully consequences for it. And then it happens inside the church and it's almost like paralyzing because of the sacrilege of it. The place where God dwells should be safe and secure from all harm. So what do we do when corruption and desecration enters into the tabernacle or into the place of worship when it enters into our own places. Like, I I can't help but wonder what Hannah and Elkanah would have done if they'd known that Eli's sons were so full of wickedness and corruption. Yeah, I think this takes us back to the law of God, that the law of God creates boundaries for flourishing. It's 
not a list of things that are included in the Bible because God wants to spoil the fun of life. The law of God creates these boundaries for flourishing. It goes back to that age old question. What is a river without banks? It's a flood. It's destructive. So the law of God creates boundaries for flourishing. And we find these instructions, these boundaries throughout the Bible for those serving in leadership. The Old Testament law, for example, in various places gave specific details regarding dress, behavior, the cleanliness of priests. Priests were ordinary human beings, so naturally they sinned against God and others. And there were instructions in the law for how they were to atone for their personal sins within the priesthood. And also in instances of more serious issues, such as uh, a priest in Israel, you know, going and worshiping a false god, divination, that kind of thing, they could be permanently banned in the priesthood. We see a continuity of expectations around character continue throughout scripture. So in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, both of those passages give us a vision for character, the character of leaders in the church. And then we see this even practically play out, like in those early chapters in Galatians, as Paul is recounting his story and the story of the gospel. He tells us of this corrective confrontation that he had with the apostle Peter. Unfortunately, in Hannah and Elkanah's day, they didn't have much recourse other than Eli, who was the designated high priest. And Eli's failure here, he's not committing the explicit sin that his sons are committed, committing but he's overlooking their sin. And probably because they were his sons, Eli is, is unwilling to take corrective action with them. And so this is what makes this story, I think, even more profound. Even at a time when there wasn't a kingdom structure in place to help with accountability, God still held the priesthood accountable and took action himself. And I think that that's what this story ultimately points to is God as King. Yeah. I think today, you know, for those of us or, or anyone listening, who's been harmed by the church and very few of us may escape it to some degree, at least, unfortunately, but if there has been harm, like my heart goes out to you with all empathy. Mm -hmm. I understand that like walking back through the doors of the church could feel impossible when trust has been broken, when harm has been done in God's name, especially. So I don't pretend that it's a short or a simple road of healing and trusting again, but like you're saying in this structure of pointing to God as King, there's so much hope in this awareness that God, you know, is, will reign as the one true King with justice and righteousness. And that he'll also expose you talked about this yesterday, expose the sacrilege and the desecration that is in his church, that those things cannot stand up to his light. Like, yes, they will creep in, but God will always shine a light on the darkness. It doesn't get to just fester and take over. He'll preserve the holiness of his church and nothing can undermine the ministry of Christ. So in the midst of, you know, perhaps our disillusionment when we, I don't know, hear another report of something taking place or watch another documentary on Netflix about um, things like this happening in today's world in the midst of all that? Is it enough to hold fast to the promise that 
nothing can undermine the ministry of Jesus. Yes. And on one side of the coin, when we hear about those reports or we're finding out about these things in the church, it's incredibly discouraging. Um, It's incredibly traumatic if you have experienced that firsthand. But the rooting out of these things on the other side of that coin is the grace of God. God is Mm. finding these things out in his church. His light is exposing this darkness. His holiness is burning away unholiness. And in that sense, we can celebrate the reign of God as he works in his church. Yeah, that's so encouraging. We touched on this briefly last week, um, but again, this week, we find the whole of the story basically taking place in the tabernacle, in the place of worship. So that seems really significant when we read scripture and the unfolding of the story. Maybe we try to simplify it too much and say things like God was dwelling with his people in the tent and the temple and the tabernacle. And then Jesus comes and leaves his spirit and God dwells with us, makes his home, his tent with us. So we don't need a special building or any building at all, or the adornments or the fancy words or whatever it is to worship anymore. What do you say to that, Brian? Yeah, it's, it's a significant question. I think we have a misunderstanding about the relationship between the personal and the corporate dimensions of our relationship with Christ. Oftentimes we look back at the Old Testament and we see, oh, there was a corporate dimension of relating to God through the tabernacle in Israel, but personally people didn't have the Holy Spirit. And then after the resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit in Acts, then it's almost like we flip a switch and then we say, oh, well, people are personally filled with God's Spirit, so the corporate doesn't matter any longer. And I think both of those perceptions are ditches on both sides of the road. Throughout scripture, we see the personal and the corporate as one and the same. They're bound together. Just because people in the Old Testament were worshiping at the tabernacle, it wasn't as if the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, to people individually was somehow absent. And conversely or inversely, as we look to the New Testament, uh, just because we're now receiving this abundant infilling of the Holy spirit. That doesn't mean that we just walk away from one another or walk away from worship in the church. These things throughout scripture, there's a continuity of how these things personally and corporately work together in synergy. Um, So that's, it's fascinating. Uh, It's a significant question that, that many are asking, especially post pandemic when we kind of fell out of that rhythm of, worshiping and and being at the temple, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And together corporately on, you know, as, as we, as we worship, it's our liturgy. That's one of the things that is so significant about our time together. And you mentioned on Sunday morning that liturgy is not rote religion or performance, but it's for the purpose of carrying out the ministry of Christ on earth as it is in heaven. Can you say more about that? What happens during our liturgy specifically that carries out that work? Yeah, I love the exploration of this idea. In the sermon, I reflected on just a few passages from Hebrew eight through not uh, uh, Hebrew chapter eight and nine, 
And in Hebrews chapter 8, for example, verse 5, we find that they offer worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly one. So there's this eternal reality that Christ is reigning in heaven, and there he is acting as ultimately our high priest in this heavenly and true sanctuary. But worship here on earth in the tabernacle in the church is a reflection of that, is sacramentally connected with that worship. Uh, In the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, it talks about these various elements that go into worship, whether it's singing or prayer or the word of God, and then in particularly the sacraments, the sacraments of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I'm captivated in our day and age by this need to rediscover the transcendent power of liturgy and how that in worship, worship really becomes this meeting place between heaven and earth where corporately we're coming together individually filled with the Holy Spirit. But it's, it's really this dress rehearsal uh, for the world as it will one day be. Uh, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 27, it says, there is in every sac- sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. That's profound. It quotes 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 through 18. For example, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? There's this individual dimension, but we're coming together in this sacramental union with Christ. And throughout the Bible, I just can't get away from the centrality of the temple for faith. I mean, originally in the garden, Adam and Eve, they were dwelling in a temple of sorts with God, which was creation. And then that was broken. That was shattered. But God throughout is reestablishing his presence among his people in the tabernacle, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. This is the church. And then we look to Revelation 21 and 22, and we find, for example, that there is no temple in the city because Christ is that temple and the whole world is his sanctuary. Mm-hmm. So during the pandemic, we naturally ask, what good does it do? do us to attend worship week in and week out. And I think the answer is that Christ is ministering to us from heaven through the liturgy, through his word and through his sacrament in a way that is unique in all the world. And we get glimpses of that reign of Christ, that ministry of Christ when we're in nature or we serve one another, but these moments are synergistically linked, not apart from or in the place of the Holy liturgy. Wow. There was a lot there. Thank you for unpacking that. No, <laughs> there really. is a lot there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for reminding us 
of the importance and the significance and the sacredness that these things that we do, that even our time spent together is not rote. You know, we get used to it and um, carry on business as usual. But I love that picture of the dress rehearsal and just how it all comes together and how everything culminates to at the table. That's beautiful. Brian, is there anything else from your preparation that you did for this week that you didn't get to share yesterday and that you can enlighten us with now? Yeah, these early chapters of First Samuel present to us a juxtaposition between Hannah, Samuel uh, versus the house of Eli. And what we really begin to see in chapter two is Hannah's burgeoning life versus the fading light of the house of Eli. It's a side-by-side comparison that is growing apart in infinite terms. And it's a story of great hope for our life. Often in our life, uh, righteousness and unrighteousness occupy the same space Hmm. in our community, in our workplaces, in our our political system. But in the reality of God's economy, they are radically different trajectories unfolding in the same space. And if you think about it, this is really the essence of the gospel, that the wonder of our salvation shares space with the tragic reality of the cross, Hmm. that righteousness is emerging from unrighteousness. And I think this is immensely helpful as we seek to live a life of faith like women, like Hannah or Mary, uh, particularly in the face of unrighteous situations, like the situations they faced. But we can live a life of peace and equanimity and confidence, not because we're feeling it or not because the circumstance allow it, but because Christ is reigning and his righteousness will always prevail. That's so profound, so encouraging, so hopeful. And I think it's the perfect note to end on as we walk into this week. Thank you just for reminding us that the reign of Christ makes all the difference. Like you said, despite our circumstances, despite what we're seeing around us, that it's it's Christ's presence in the darkness that his light always shines through. So amen. That's wonderful. As we wrap up now, I just want to remind everyone, do not forget to submit your questions for the First Samuel series at oaksparish.org backslash podcast. We have four more weeks in First Samuel before we'll take a break for Advent. So at the end of November, we'll be doing a special Q&A podcast where Brian will respond to all your questions about the passages we've covered so far in First Samuel. So whatever's on your mind, questions, curiosities, big or small, Ask them at oaksparish.org slash podcast, and we'll get to those on November 17th. Until next week, thank you for listening, and we're looking forward to our next conversation. 